Well, good evening, everybody, and um, welcome to the first lecture in this year's Ralph Miliband program series. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And, and our theme this whole year is turbulent times. We had the feeling that, you know, history's somehow speeding up at the moment. It doesn't feel like a normal pace of events. There is an extraordinary third person up on the podium. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it all means. It sounds like a slightly tinny version of you a few seconds later. Uh, yeah. Goodness me, is it a tinny version of me a few seconds later? I, I'll just carry on. Um, so th that's our theme, and I think nothing um, has done more to foster that sense of turbulence, really, than the Brexit referendum here, and especially afterwards the election of Donald Trump in the United States. And, and no one's had a better vantage point for thinking about both those things than our speaker tonight, Mark Thompson. <laughs> is, it, is it him or not? I can't tell. Um, so, someone's looking into it, so I'll just carry on. Um, that's an entertaining beginning to the year. Um, Mark Thompson, as many of you know, is currently the Chief Executive Officer of the New York Times Company, and he was previously the Director General of the BBC from 2004 to 2012. So, I mean, you can see just from that that he's been standing at the very top of the major news organisations in both of the most important English language countries for news. But he, what are we going to do about that? Is that? <laughs> it's. Um, are you able to do something about I, I that? I think it's walkie-talkie. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> So as you can see, we are not one of the two major news organisations in <laughs> we have. Um, I, 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 was, I was making the point that both at the New York Times and before that at the BBC, he's had an excellent vantage point for thinking about these things. But I did just want to quickly say that um, Mark joined the BBC you know, quite a long time ago, I think as a production trainee, if I'm right. And he's seen that whole organisation really through all its stages from the bottom up. And he's worked on numerous programmes, programmes that you know, Newsnight, the 9 o'clock news, Panorama and so on, before moving on to sort of more executive-like jobs as controller of BBC Two, director of television, and then later as the chief executive of Channel 4. Um, he's also been a visiting professor of rhetoric at the University of Oxford. And last year, he published a book, Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics? And I think it's fair to say that the book was conceived of and thought about by looking at some long-term trends. And then, lo and behold, these events that we're talking about came and gave it a real resonance with um, the times that we're in. Well, those are the themes that he's going to talk to us about tonight. Um, our speaker will speak for about, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But before I ask him to speak, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Mark Thompson. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, uh, it's a great pleasure to be at the LSE, and thank you all for, for coming tonight. So, so last year, um, a few months before 
that referendum, um, uh, uh, there was another referendum, Rakhine referendum, which I guess most people here will remember. Uh, but let me, let me just remind you of the details. Um, in around March 2016, the uh, Natural Environmental Research Council decided that they wanted to get the British public's help in naming a new Antarctic research vessel. <laughs> but as is the way with referendums, things didn't go quite the way they planned. Um, uh, I think just a day or so after the, the polls opened, uh, a former BBC local radio presenter, it's always, always the BBC at the heart of this, by the way, a man called James Hand suggested that Boaty McBoatface um, was the right name for, for the ship. Um, and, well, you know what happened. Uh, 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 Boaty McBoatface won by a country mile. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the name that the NERC chose, uh, or in fact the government, because by this stage the controversy had caught the attention of ministers, and I think people above the NERC were deciding what was going to happen. They chose uh, uh, the name uh, Sir David Attenborough. The, the ship became the RSS Sir David Attenborough uh, after the great uh, uh, TV naturalist. I know, I know David very well. Um, Sir David Attenborough had come in at number five. Um, number four was It's Bloody Cold Here, which is my favourite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but of course, if you're a member of the establishment, Sir David Attenborough is the name the public really should have chosen. It's the right answer. It's the right, he's done lots of films in the Antarctic. Why shouldn't it be the Sir David Attenborough? So they took Boaty McBoatface and they gave that name... There's a couple of unmanned little submersibles, tiny little things which go down on their own to film underwater, and that's now boating at both I think, I think ministers are hoping it stays underwater for as much as possible. <laughs> so, OK, let's, let's just spend a moment. This is a tiny little example of participative democracy in 2016. Um, what's going on? Well, uh, uh, you'll have your own views. We can talk about it, but here's the way I see it. The decision to consult the public open up a website where you can suggest names, is a classic example of a listening exercise. The great thing about listening exercise, you think, what, what, what are governments doing when they're not doing listening exercises? What's their normal state? But anyway, it's a listening exercise. And it's a kind of recognition that you, you, you need to make some kind of deliberate and visible effort to, to uh, engage the public and, and, and give them a sense of participating and sharing. Well, the first problem is the public kind of know about listening exercise and they know about this kind of thing and they don't react in the kind of deferential way, the kind of gratitude, thank you so much for asking us, we'll think really hard and come up with some sensible names. What they came up with here, and it's not the only example, I think, is, is a kind of piece of crowdsourced satire. It's a bit of fun and it's kind of designed as well to uh, annoy the people who, are, who have started the listening exercise. And the establishment's reaction to that is this incredible immediate move to give the right answer and to impose... So it's like there's an imaginary version of the public in the establishment's head. And that public would have said Sir David Attenborough. They all love Sir David Attenborough. They all watch his programmes. Why shouldn't it be Sir David Attenborough? So there's a kind of substitution of the wrong answer with the right answer. Um, well, this is 2016. 
A few months later, the American public, certainly tens of millions, maybe not quite the popular vote, but certainly the Electoral College, was enough to put President Boaty McBoatface in the White House. <laughs> and as you know, famously, in June 2016, we can't really call it Boaty McBrexit, but I guess HMS McBrexit was chosen by the British public. And in some part, I want to say, I think some, uh, there's, there's, you know, we, I'll talk about, and you'll have your own views about what happened. Part of what happened, I think, was um, uh, answers which were intended to be mischievous, uh, were intended to irritate people who live in London, people with college degrees and, you know, research scientists and political experts. It was, it was designed, I think, these, these, these answers are, to some extent, uh, not um, a validation of democracy, as it's understood by the establishment, the kind of deliberative, serious stuff that people are meant to do, but a kind of subversive two fingers. Um, you give us the chance, and we'll put two fingers up. For many people... In, 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 superficially, actually, the Trump election in November was, I think, more, more shocking and more emotional. I think, I'm not sure that's the way it's going to play out in the, in, in, in the end. But both of these uh, events caused reactions for many, many people, people who, as it were, felt they were on the losing side, the Remainers and the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, which felt like a... Uh, uh, an unexpected and incomprehensible eclipse of reason and moderation and rationality and decency by prejudice and ignorance and hate. Uh, and really, I mean, to the extent that certainly at the New York Times and with uh, many of my colleagues, we were almost in kind of counselling mode for, for days afterwards. Um, People felt, many people, not all, all people, felt that they'd woken up to find themselves amongst, amongst strangers. Um, people they regarded as neighbours, friends, in some cases, particularly in the Trump case, uh, family members, who suddenly turned out to have worldviews, ideas, points of principle, which were completely alien and kind of incommensurable, not fitting with, not, not measurable against their own. Um, and it's worth saying the elites, political scientists, the media commentators, the media, uh, the majority of business leaders, the professional politicians themselves were the most surprised of all. And just as with um, Boti, um, the reaction of many of them was not just to oppose the results, you, you lose the democratic decision, you, you go into opposition but to declare them in some way illegal or, or a mistake um, or perhaps entirely the work of Vladimir Putin um, or of Facebook or of the BBC. The BBC accused last summer of being too fair, essentially, in its treatment of the, of the, uh, of the uh, EU referendum. And, of course, the notion that they themselves might bear some of the responsibility for what had happened was a, a thought which came up less often, the sense that that maybe um, this was a reaction to something that elites had done um, uh, didn't really um, c come quite so clearly. For people on the other side, um, the vast numbers of people who voted for Trump and, and for Leave, and indeed 
also for the populist, nationalist, and extremist parties like AFD, um, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, and the others, who were gaining support in many continental countries, these people took a completely different view of what had happened. For them, the results were a kind of breakthrough, um, a kind of refreshing, um, uh, sudden, unexpected turn of events, um, maybe even a turning point in their heads. Um, and for them, the stories of ordinary people, um, um, real people, kind of authentic people, um, finally standing up to self-serving elites and showing them who's boss. So I'm going to be talking about language that. How do the two sides uh, in this sort of this sense of strangers, how do they describe each other? Well, as luck would have it, um, two British uh, notable figures have given us some very useful adjectives. They clashed recently on Twitter. Um, J.K. Rowling um, had been tweeting about how satisfied she'd been, um, she'd been when she'd heard Piers Morgan being abused on an a American TV talk show for defending Donald Trump. And so uh, Piers quickly hit back. He said, the superior dismissive arrogance of rabid Remain Clinton supporters like J.K. Rowling is, of course, precisely why both campaigns lost. And exactly six minutes later, she doesn't hang around... The creative Harry Potter responded with this. The fact-free, amoral, bigotry apologism of, of celebrity toady Piers Morgan, she's a good writer, is of, co- <laughs> is of course why it's so delicious to see, see him told to fuck off. <laughs> so that, it's frighteningly representative. That's the sound of political discourse in 2017. Superior, dismissive, arrogant versus fact-free, amoral, and bigot, with a little celebrity toady on the side. Um, Insults like this, uh, if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, um, are flying backwards and forwards across (coughs) the Western world. Populists and their supporters are racist, sexist, and cruel. They have absolutely no plan, and they lie. And the hated elites and their followers on the centre and the left are smug, controlling, corrupt, quite unable to understand or empathise with the lives and concerns of average citizens. And they lie as well. And as for uh, uh, the elite's allies in the media, uh, let me briefly channel the 45th President of the United States. I can't, I'm afraid, do justice to his accent. Um, Quote, uh, the fake news media, failing NY Times, NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN, is not my enemy it is the enemy of the American people. In other words, we the media are every bit as bad as those other enemies of the people, the British judges, or so-called judges as Donald would call them, uh, who were told by the Daily Mail that they too were enemies of the people for having the insolence to suggest that Parliament should decide on the triggering of Article 50. So how do we, how do we come to this pass? Um, you'll hear many answers to that question, Income inequality in Western societies, public anger about the financial crash and the West's wars in the Middle East, the threats and uncertainties caused by globalisation, automation, mass migration, and so on. I don't want to deny the validity of any of these answers as explanations, but tonight I want to explore another kind of answer, one which is tangled up in these other political, economic, and cultural causes which I think is worthy of consideration in its own right. 
and I mean the health, or to be more precise, the acute lack of health of our public language. Um, I'm a member of the elite. Um, I was in the room in Davos this January when I heard the, the political philosopher Michael Sandel make the following remark after a week of discussion about populism, which was certainly high on disapproval, but rather lower on self-reflection. Michael said, why is Davos man and woman still so deaf to the legitimate grievances of ordinary people? Why is Davos man and woman still so deaf to the legitimate grievances of ordinary people? Sandel's question does not deny those topics of economic and social stress and injustice. Um, They, I think, constitute the, in quotes, legitimate grievances to which he refers. But he also directs our attention to a relationship, the one between, if you like, the rulers and the rule, the the experts, the, 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 the best educated, the wealthiest people in society and many of his ordinary citizens, and a relationship which is going wrong specifically because of a failure or an inability to listen. Listening is not the same as conducting a listening exercise, uh, which is now a largely discredited form of political marketing. It's not the same as attending focus groups or doing audience data analysis or multivariate testing and real-time optimization. You can't truly listen if you don't respect the person who is speaking and are not prepared to take what they say seriously. Western citizens, in my view, only stopped listening to Western elites when the citizens came to realise that those elites were no longer prepared or even capable of truly listening to them. Aristotle believed that public language, or rhetoric, gained its persuasive power not just from evidence and argument, which he called logos, but from the character expressed by the speaker, ethos, and the mood of the audience, or pathos. Ethos and pathos imply an ability to listen. Crucially, not just an ability on the part of the crowd, but on the part of the woman or the man who is addressing the crowd. Indeed, Martin Heidegger went so far as to define rhetoric as the art not of speaking, but the art of listening. So what's gone wrong? Early on in uh, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, uh, the good doctor says, Sweet analytics, tis thou hast ravished me. And analytics have ravished many a contemporary technocrat to the point where they believe that logos, argument, evidence, the facts, is the only thing that matters in public discourse. Um, There was a moment when a a, a political scientist who travelled up from London was talking to a crowd in Newcastle Uh, about the economic risks of the UK leaving the EU. And a woman shouted from the back of the crowd, that's your GDP, not our GDP. And although it's kind of crazy, you know what she means. It's that that whole world, the world he was describing, is one they just didn't, didn't relate to the experience that she was having in her life. And you can dismiss Michael Gove's infamous dictum, I think the people in this country have had enough of experts... Um, he added, by the way, kind of talked over by the Sky interview from, from organisations with acronyms. That's kind of lost in the, in the mist of time. But I think this country's had enough of experts. But there's no doubt he'd identified a genuine widespread sentiment. Interestingly, Gove himself was clearly aware that, that he must come across as yet another member of the elite. And he went on to say, 
I'm not asking the public to trust me, I'm asking them to trust themselves. Which I think is very artful. He seems to be saying, I accept you can't trust me because I'm one of them, but I'm just voicing the instinct that you yourselves have about experts, which is that they talk down to ordinary people, they tend to speak gibberish, and they're often wrong. Most democratic politicians understand the need for at least a show of empathy and willingness to listen, alongside the presentation of policy or the dismantling of an opponent's argument. The famous masochism strategy, the counterintuitive decision by Labour during the Iraq war debate and 2005 election to expose the then Prime Minister Tony Blair to angry voters on TV so that people at home could see him directly experiencing public fury and, in the words of the party's own PR advisers, taking some hits. That's a good example of this instinct. But in our fragmenting societies, the act of publicly and sympathetically listening to one group of citizens can feel to other groups as if you're turning a deaf ear to them, or worse. Um, Here's the famous passage during the US election campaign when Hillary Clinton tried to describe Donald Trump's supporters. Um, She was speaking at an LGBT fundraiser in New York City, um, and she no doubt thought she was very definitely amongst strong friends and supporters. And in the way that can happen even to extremely experienced politicians, for a moment seems to have forgotten that with TV cameras there uh, and with Twitter, that she was actually speaking to the whole of America. And, and this is the passage. And you, you've probably heard some of it, but the passage is worth reading in its entirety. So she said, you know, to be just grossly generalistic... You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that. And he has lifted them up. He has given voice to their websites that used to have only 11,000 people, now 11 million. He tweets and retweets their offensive, hateful, mean-spirited rhetoric. Now, some of these folks... They are irredeemable, but thankfully they're not America. This has largely been regarded in in retrospect as as an electorally suicidal moment. Um, Even, to to spell it out, even an undecided voter who was merely considering voting for Trump would assume that Hillary Clinton had assigned them to the deplorable half. But the most disturbing thing about this grossly generalistic, but clearly heartfelt passage is its, its depth of despair. Um, at this point, Trump was polling around 43%. Um, so taken literally half of Trump supporters means more than one in five Americans. And they're not merely deplorable, but irredeemable, which is a quite remarkably pessimistic word for a progressive politician to use of anyone. And in its way, I think it's as grim a reflection on the state of America as anything that that great exaggerator Donald Trump has come up with, and in its way just as divisive. But the point I want to make is, people who are politically irredeemable are not worth listening to. Indeed, given their repellent, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic views, it would be morally wrong to listen to them, right? Right? A few months ago, I was talking to um, uh, 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 and talking about this topic of listening to a room full of philosophers and, and social scientists in New York, and 
they said to me, surely you're not suggesting that we should listen to racists. Now here the word listen has taken on uh, the meaning not just of listening, but of respecting, recognizing, accepting the legitimacy of, perhaps even of tacitly agreeing with. But I don't think that's what listening should mean. To me, listening to someone with whose political ideas and values you profoundly disagree is a necessary prelude to arguing with them. Arguing with the intention of convincing them that they are wrong and that your ideas and values are right. And it's the possibility of doing that, which it seems to me Hillary Clinton's words make seem impossible. They're irredeemable. There's no point. But I believe we should argue for what we believe in until the argument is won, not stopping when we've convinced ourselves or convinced those who agreed with us even before we started speaking, but until we've shifted the view of those on the other side of the argument. And you certainly can't do that until you've listened to them and understood their position. So, when I hear people say there's no point listening or arguing with racists. There's no point debating with climate sceptics or vaccine sceptics. They shouldn't be allowed on the air. We shouldn't even engage with traditionalists who object to social and sexual liberalisation and so on. It's better to ignore them or no platform them or demonise them. I want to say, whatever the rights and wrongs of this position in theory, as a matter of practicality, it seems to me that's a set of tactics which gloriously failed both in the UK and in the US last year. The, until very late in the day, many liberals dismissed Trump as, a, as an unelectable joke and his supporters as a tiny and unrepresentative kind of angry, white, redneck male minority. In fact, and there's straightforward numbers on this, the resentment and alienation, the sense of not being listened to, stretch deep into American society into its prosperous suburbs uh, and cities. Almost as many college-educated white women voted for Donald Trump as voted for Hillary Clinton. Now, let's listen to somebody else. Here's the voice of one, I think it's fair to say, reluctant Trump supporter. If you want identity politics, identity politics is what you'll get. I know many on the left will read this and ask how I could therefore possibly vote for Trump. The answer is that the right didn't create it, the left did. It constitutes the entire world view of the left today, and the right is reacting. Maybe now that you see what you've created, you will turn back to promoting a vision of the world where race, gender, sexual orientation, and ethnicity fade away, and we all become individuals again. Or maybe I'm just so sick of being called a bigot that my anger at the authoritarian left has pushed me to support this seriously flawed man. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying I, 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 I agree with this, this person but it's quite interesting to actually hear his reasons for, for voting for Trump. And I want to say the conjecture that suppressing anti-modernists and to liberals, uh, including myself, by the way, atavistic and unacceptable political and social attitudes, the conjecture that suppressing them would make them disappear has not just failed, but in my view has enabled him and empowered the very things it was trying to suppress. But the failure of conventional political discourse last year uh, has gone far beyond these prevailing liberal postures. 
attempts in the centre and centre-right to triangulate and somehow appear to be both in favour of thoroughgoing capitalism and of social justice or in favour of open multicultural societies and against immigration and the taking in of refugees also foundered. And plenty of other deep-seated negative forces are at work, some of which I described in my book. The tendency of language to become compressed, encoded, oversimplified. Sarah Palin's two-worded tweeted attack of Obamacare back in 2009, her famous phrase, death panels, is a classic example. It was death panels that got me thinking about this entire topic. It was two words. wasn't in a speech. wasn't in an interview. It was tweeted and put on Facebook in the, in the summer of 2009, eight years ago, and it changed the course of that political debate. And I thought, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, long before Donald came on the scene. Next, politicians. Increasing refusal. You can see this pretty much across, across the West to talk about trade-offs and difficult decisions and their growing taste for exaggeration and lies. Um, Boris Johnson's recent resurrection of the magical weekly £350 million from the EU can speak to that. The media is going through its own existential crisis. Um, The media's relationship with the traditional political classes is significantly broken. And many members of the media not true of the BBC, I believe, it's not true of the New York Times, but many, many members of the media believe that don't really believe that their audiences want to consume serious content anymore. Digital technology, which has become an accelerant and intensifier of the news cycle, it's become, there are, there's much good about digital media. It's hard to deny, though, it's also become a kind of well, a kind of ever-replenishing well of hate and extremism, And it's also available, as we've discovered, um, in many countries, including the US, as a ready tool for the manipulation of uh, uh, elections and of public attitudes by fringe groups, by hostile countries, by who knows whom. And in addition to this, so the the compression of language, uh, the problem with politics, uh, politicians talking about trade-offs and talking about what's actually happening rather than rather than what they think they probably want to hear, and the media. Finally, some transfer of technology from commercial marketing, uh, stuff that's been learned empirically about how you persuade people and how you test empirically that persuasion, being transferred to politics and the use of both classic market research techniques, but much more recently, um, also by straight, straightforward optimization uh, through algorithms um, on the internet to progressively and mechanically improve persuasion. And to me, these, the, the combination of this is the reason why we've got into such a state, uh, why um, we seem to have got a, a political language which is good at persuasion and impact, especially in short-form expression like Twitter, but has lost its explanatory power. It's why I think the public are finding it harder and harder to believe politicians. And I think it's opened up a gap. The gap between conventional politics and the public at large is a gap into which um, populism almost inevitably bursts in and fills the gap. Um, Populism can be of both left and right. Left populism... um, 
which shares many of the fundamental features of right populism, which is very easy answers uh, and a completely flagrant denial of complexity. Everything's simple. It's very easy. I'll tell you the truth. Passionate solidarity with the group. So, you know, it's uh, I speak for you. I will be your voice, as Donald Trump said. It's a, that was, the, by the way, the same words were used in Europe in the 1930s by the European uh, fascist leaders. I, I can be your voice. I can be the voice of the, the people who are not heard. Um, um, the ritual identification of enemies and um, the fetishization of authenticity. The, uh, the I'm real, you're real, these people aren't, aren't real. That sense of... Um, a kind of truthfulness of, of uh, personality, um, which um, I call in my book authenticism. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's got anything to do with truth-telling or authenticity, but it certainly aims to give that impression for effect. Um, so th- these things exist on the left in southern Europe. Um, uh, early Syriza in Greece and, and Podemos uh, will be examples of that. I think you can see glimpse of it in the Bernie Sanders movement in, in the US. You can see glimpse of it, uh, glimpses of it in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. But the biggest advances, if you can call them that, have been for right populism. Um, um, in the UK, the populism came not in the form of a kind of classic, charismatic, disruptive populist, populist character. There are a few kind of would-be populist messiahs like Nigel Farage and, and, and uh, Boris Johnson on the edges, but it was a disruptive populist policy. Um, And the curious thing about that is um, you you see this very odd thing going on right now with British political language of essentially entirely traditional conventional politicians trying to find a way of talking in the populist language which Brexit seems to require. Um, um, and in particular, um, the, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has found it very hard to kind of wrap her mouth around Brexit. Uh, if you remember, uh, soon after the, she became leader and she was asked what Brexit was, she said, Brexit means Brexit. Um, and, and frankly, that was all she had to say until the end of last year, in December. Um, and by then, in the absence of clarity from the government... There was a kind of very lively media debate about was it going to be a, 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 um, a, um, a kind of black Brexit, a complete Brexit, a, a soft, hard, soft, was it, would it be a grey Brexit? Um, they very characteristically, you know, Philip Hammond, they said, well, he must be in favour of the grey, he's so grey, he must be in favour of the grey Brexit. Um, so she's asked, what, what do you want? And she says at this point, her next statement is to say, actually, what we should be looking for is a red, white and blue Brexit. Uh, uh, And she continues, um, that is the right deal for the United Kingdom, what is going to be the right relationship for the UK with the European Union once we're left. That's what we're about. That's what we'll be working on. Um, Now, a red, white and blue Brexit, I think, uh, if it means anything, is a kind of very pale, reasonable version of America first, the kind of blood-curdling Trumpian America first. It's going to be red, white, and blue. It's going to be the Union Jack. What Red, white, and blue, by the way, is hardly ever used as a phrase about the Union Jack. It's used a bit by, you know, extremist um, um, uh, uh, racist parties in, in the UK. It's an American phrase. It's kind of, it's the stars and stripes. So it's, anyway, she lifts this, red, white, and blue. 
And I think if you think a red, white, and blue Brexit means it's going to be a Brexit which is good for, for the UK, I think she's saying the right deal for the UK is the right deal for the UK. It's still it's a completely circular argument. And in recent months, if you think of Michael Gove saying the public have had enough of the kind of language of, of experts and the convoluted technocratic jargon, it's kind of bad news if you're a lead voter because as the UK goes progressively into, into the negotiations with, with the EU, it's inevitable that all we're talking about are different kinds of transitional periods, customs union, member, membership of EFTA and the EEA, and all the rest of it, and the role of the ECJ. I wonder how many members of the British public can tell you what ECJ stands for. Um, it's exactly the kind of language that the Brexit vote was meant to get rid of forever, uh, and there's now, I think, a certainty that they're going to be living with it for years to come. Um, so I don't think in the UK you really get the kind of full strength, industrial strength um, uh, uh, kind of language of right populism. Um, go to Germany at the weekend and listen to AFD. We're going to stop the invasion of foreigners. We're going to hunt Frau Merkel. Um, uh, that's, that's more traditional. And the other person you hear it from is the President of the United States. Um, 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 I don't think anyone could accuse Donald Trump of anything less than, than kind of completely full-blooded populist rhetoric. Though, of course, if you asked him um, about rhetoric, he would deny he's using it. Um, he said um, at his inauguration, the time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Um, rhetoric is for other people. Um, now, this is a classic. This is what Mark Antony says um, in the middle of the Friends, Romans and Countrymen speech in Julius Caesar. He says, I am no orator, as Brutus is, but as you know me, a plain, blunt man. Um, I'm, a, I'm a simple soldier. I know what to do. Silvia Berlusconi, who's a kind of proto-Trump, um, 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 in the 1990s once said to the Italian people, if there's one thing I can't abide, it's rhetoric. All I care about is what needs to get done. And it may be, you may want to argue um, that if you compare uh, what Trump's got to say to John F. Kennedy or, or uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that it's not, it's not, it, ha- it lacks the kind of classic uh, 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 roundedness and exquisiteness of great uh, American presidential rhetoric. But rhetoric is not about fine speaking. It's about persuasion in any means possible. Uh, and so when Trump says he's not using rhetoric, he's wrong. He is. Uh, anti-rhetoric is rhetoric. It's a rhetoric like any other kind, and it can be very effective. So let's have a little look at, look at what's going on. I've, I mentioned Mark Antony. Julius Caesar himself um, had a problem when he was leaving um, uh, to go to Gaul. He, he went off from uh, Rome knew he was going to have to spend, I think, several years in Gaul. How do you keep your brand alive back in, in Rome? So you write letters, but the letters are designed essentially to be nailed up in public places so everyone can see what Julius Caesar's up to. So what you don't need is the kind of flowery language of Cicero, sort of complicated sentences. The famous, famous example is Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. 
So they call it, in rhetoric, they call that parataxis. Very short, simple sentences, sometimes just phrases. They can layer them up. We have to build a wall, folks. We have to build a wall. And a wall works. All you have to do is go to Israel and say, how is your wall working? <laughs> Walls work. Parataxis. That's Donald Trump back in uh, September 2015 in Dallas. And it's clever stuff. It's clever stuff. Repetition, rhythm, alliteration, all those words in wall and work, is intensifies it and pulls it together. And you can hear the crowd. And it's really important to say that what Trump is doing, he's listening. If you listen to him more recently in Phoenix, he did a, just a few weeks ago a rally, and I think he's doing his rallies, lots of reasons why he's doing his rallies, but one of the reasons he's doing his rallies is so he can listen and and kind of get recharged rhetorically by what he gets back from the crowd. And I think, like a certain kind of stand-up comedian, he hones his material. He was going into these rallies, early rallies, uh, and I think he still does this today, with just a few headline words on a bit of paper. And you could see him feeling his way to, to, to understanding what, the, what, what, what was working with the crowd, and he discovered early on that the phrase political correctness instantly got a standing ovation, essentially. Uh, and political correctness means, I think, something different to his crowds than it does to us. We might think political correctness, some of the stuff I said earlier, you know, this business of, 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 of permissible discourse, how far can you go, uh, the balance between freedom of speech versus um, um, the right of minorities not to be offended or to be hurt. Um, political correctness, I, I think, means Barack Obama giving giving white people's jobs to black people. That's, that's what the code was, I think. Um, the style's got its drawbacks. Um, um, to state the obvious, it's not very good for conveying sophisticated thought. Um, um, and actually, in a funny way, it's like a betrayal. To, to try and make it do complicated things is a betrayal of the style. The style, it's meant to be like a knife cutting through, uh, and that's how he uses it. So it's, it's almost impossible to get any kind of finesse around, uh, uh, you know, healthcare reform because the, the, the style won't do it. And the other thing is it's really hard to pull off. And a practical challenge for Trump has been that essentially that no, nobody else in his government can really do it. Um, Kellyanne Conway, who's one of his closest aides, said um, none of it can do it like he does. No one can do Trump like Trump. Um, and it means that whereas most presidents have actually got lots of surrogates, they've got lots of other people who can speak for them, Trump hasn't really got anyone who can do the kind of um, communicating he wants to do, and he's got to do it all himself. And months into office, months and months, where most pre presidents have kind of gone into the Oval Office and they're doing occasional speeches, they're actually, you know, sleeve roll rolled up, actually doing the job of being president. He's still doing this incredible 24-7 kind of rhetorical blitzkrieg of tweets and uh, 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 other kinds of social media statement, Instagrams and all the rest of it, uh, constant TV interviews, and you can still, I mean, until very recently, I think he's now stopped, um, uh, reporters in the New York Times could ring him. Um, um, I mean, the idea you can literally ring Donald Trump on his old, his old cell phone number and the president answers it in the Oval <laughs> Office and will give you a quote, and in one case, um, I simply said, come in. Come in, just come in. You want to talk to me? Come in. And they spent two and a half hours with him. So, so he's, he's, he's got a massive job 
uh, 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 continuously. The principal thing he seems to be doing, in a sense, is emoting. Um, if, if one attack he makes gets bogged down or becomes complicated or controversial, he just launches three more, uh, um, just as he did as a candidate. Um, and in some ways, I, I want to be careful here because some of the executive orders have had real-world effects. It's like the, 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 I mean, virtually nothing significant or controversial has got through the Congress's legislation. A lot of the executive orders are kind of fundamentally rhetorical in intent as well. They're kind of another way of saying something uh, with the authority of president. Um, a lot of the things I talked about, you know, in my lectures in 2012, exaggeration, distortion, um, recklessness with, you know, the retweeting of conspiracy theories and rumours and all the rest of it. Um, these are central features, uh, not just of Trump's early morning tweets, those kind of 6.27 in the morning tweets, but of his formal rhetoric as president. Um, in, in that um, inaugural address, he described America, which in the end is one of the most successful and prosperous countries on the planet, as um, you know, this American carnage, this American carnage, which I take to be a supreme example of President Trump's tendency, implicitly or explicitly, to argue from the particular to the general. If one Mexican immigrant is a rapist, then in some sense they all are. If some Americans have lost their jobs or been the victims of crime, every American, or at least every real American, lives in, peer, uh, in poverty and fear and carnage. Um, mass propaganda... Hannah Arendt wrote about the uh, totalitarian regimes of the 1930s. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. I think that sense that that, uh, a very jaded, cynical public kind of doesn't mind if everything is wildly exaggerated and comes to a kind of fever pitch and he's found that and he plays with it but I think one of the most interesting aspects of Trumpian rhetoric um, and which I hadn't seen um, uh, and, and really only kind of saw when he become, became president in November saw it really clearly because it's, it's in it, you kind of expect it in campaigns but not in government is, is what you could call indeterminacy um, his, his, his habit of saying different and sometimes contradictory things about the same policy area within days or even hours of each other, um, or flipping from praise to blame, back to praise, uh, backwards and forwards, without appearing to worry at all um, about what that adds up to, and without his supporters also being, being worried by it at all. Conventional politicians place great emphasis on consistency. They only change tack when they feel they have to and only after very careful thought and kind of analysis. They focus group it. And they also suppress their emotions um, or use their emotions in a kind of very studied and careful way for some particular political effect. But Trump and his supporters don't feel bound by that, those conventions at all. Trumpian policy is plastic. It's reshapable to almost any degree at any time. If he says one thing and then another, the second doesn't so much replace the first as coexist alongside it. Um, There was a moment in February where people wondered whether he he was taking a turn. He He did an address to Congress in February, 
and um, it was somewhat more presidential in tone. But within two or three days, he was tweeting um, uh, about Barack Obama as a bad or sick guy uh, for wiretapping him, uh, um, a claim for which he never offered any, any evidence. Um, the, the, the shifts are not the shifts where sometimes you think, well, maybe this is more sensible. Maybe after this hurricane, he's going it, to... It's all temporary, and it's like a series of different voices in a kind of polyphony uh, of simultaneous voices. Um, and a lot of what's going on is not really about policy at all, but more like a series of real-time bulletins about how he's feeling, about his emotional state. Um, you know, one of his trademarks are these single-word sign-offs on Twitter... Sad, jobs, not, very dishonest, so dangerous, enjoy. And, and it's a kind of something he's always completely honest about if he's feeling. If he's angry, he tells you he's angry. If he's sad, he says he's sad. And what's interesting is I think for many, many Americans, his supporters, the emotional candor, the informality, the spontaneity, and even that kind of willingness to self-contradict does speak to a kind of authenticity. It's like, you know, it's like an ordinary person. That's what ordinary people do. And they like and admire it. So indeterminacy was, was much in the air when Mr. Trump came around and had lunch with us at the New York Times a few weeks after the election um, and spent, credit where credit's due, 75 minutes um, answering our questions on the record. But the answers are kind of puzzling. And I, I went back and looked at the transcript recently. Um, <laughs> I, Mr. President or Mr. President-elect, are you going to bring back torture? Um, well, he told us his pickers, defence secretary, um, uh, General Mattis, had told him it didn't work, so probably not. But actually he himself kind of thought it probably did work. So, may, you know, and it's been on and off the agenda ever since. Would he support the uh, prosecution of Hillary Clinton, as he promised repeatedly during the campaign? And he said, I don't want to hurt the Clintons, I really don't. Uh, <laughs> Trump sees contemporary politics as a Manichaean struggle between two opposing worldviews, that of the liberal elite establishment, certainly to include the New York Times, but also apparently including much of the Republican uh, uh, members of the Congress as well, and that of real Americans whose voice he claims to be. So the facts which are cited by the establishment and by establishment media are almost definitionally lies because of their source, whereas any claim which um, fits his own worldview, no matter how fanciful or unevidenced or demonstrably false even, is by definition a fact. One of Mr. Trump's sayings is that everything is negotiable, and it turns out that everything includes reality. If you don't like the facts, he has alternative ones. Um, the most concerning thing about the fake news uh, uh, controversy, and we might talk about that, is not that some people spread lies on the internet for commercial gain, nor that the digital platform giants distribute the good, the bad, and the ugly to the entire world with little discrimination, nor even that Russia and other countries are deliberately using misinformation to influence Western elections. The most troubling thing is that the man currently running the most powerful country on earth does not appear to recognize or accept the objective nature of reality. Um, and seems to believe that he has the godlike power to make things true merely by saying them. And tens of millions of Americans find this distorting mirror version of reality more credible than the one that actually obtains on planet Earth. I want you 
all to know that we are fighting the fake news, he told the Conservative Political Action Conference a few months ago. It's fake, phony, fake. It tells you everything about the new president's intuitive rhetorical facility and his lack of scruple that he should have so adroitly turned the phrase fake news into a stick to beat news organisations like the New York Times, which whatever else they do, take immense care to make sure they report what has actually happened. Donald Trump repeatedly claimed that the Times is losing audiences and subscribers. In fact, exactly the opposite has been happening in the last three months of 2016 alone. We added more digital subscribers than in the whole of 2013 and 14 combined. And other serious news providers are also seeing large audiences and more subscribers. But we should be under no illusion. In America, a tradition of fact-finding and truth-telling, which, with all its inevitable failures, is second to none in the world, is now under fundamental attack. And remember that public confusion about whom to believe, ultimately about what is true and what is false, asymmetrically favours the liar. Misinformation doesn't have to be definitively believed to damage democracy. It just has to sow enough doubt in enough people's minds about the reliability of sources of genuine information that the whole question of truth becomes a matter of permissible debate. Misinformation aims to level, to disrupt and to divide. There was misinformation aplenty in last year's Brexit debate and anger about it persists to this day. But to me, at least, it felt like an irresponsible means to an end in the heat of a political campaign. Perhaps the same could have been said of Donald Trump if the misinformation had stopped once the electoral battle was over. But it hasn't. Instead, it looks as if deliberate misinformation is to be a central feature of Mr. Trump's presidency. That would be unremarkable if we were talking about Vladimir Putin's Russia. But the fact that this is happening in America takes not just America, but the whole Western world, into unknown territory. Nor do we know where the president's hatred of what he thinks of as the establishment media will lead to. When he visited the New York Times, I asked him whether, given what he'd said about tightening America's libel laws, he supported the First Amendment, in other words, freedom of the press. I think you'll be okay, he said. I think you're going to be fine. (laughs) And then he left the building telling the rest of the world's media that the organisation he just described that morning as the failing NY Times was a duel for America and the world. (laughs) Make of that what you will. So finally, what would it take for us to arrest the decline in our political discourse and perhaps thereby to put our democracies themselves on a healthier track? The political, technological and cultural forces that have brought us here are deep-seated and unlikely to ameliorate, let alone reverse, any time soon. But that doesn't mean we should give up and do nothing. Any programme repair, of repair has got to begin with listening. To state the obvious, we cannot rebuild confidence in democracy and reunite our societies if we divide ourselves up into enemy tribes who refuse on principle to listen or talk to each other. That doesn't have to mean moral compromise or a reduction in political and ideological passion, but a more consistent and genuine effort to understand each other. So we should resist any form of censorship, not just official, but unofficial, and commit not to drive intolerance and hatred underground, but to confront them and argue against them in public. A rhetoric based solely on cold-blooded rationalism alienates and repels at least as many people as it persuades, 
and it creates the space within, within which populism and pseudo-authenticity can flourish. We need to recognise that the only kind of public language that can bring a society together is one which combines respect for evidence and rational argument with general empathy. Next, we need to take practical steps to make sure that the facts are heard. In much of the world, governments and other interests bury the real facts and promote their own alternative version of reality. There are now powerful forces in our own countries who want to do the same. But you can't rebuild anything, least of all a healthy public language, on the basis of lies, half-truths and conspiracy theories. It's time for us all to stand up for the facts. That means the New York Times and the BBC and the rest of the responsible media, but it also means you. Serious fact-finding journalism is costly to make. If you value it, help pay for it by subscribing to a newspaper or magazine, whether in print or online. And always read at least one news source whose ideological stance is different from your own. Hold your own elected politicians to account and support the ones who you can trust to tell the truth, particularly if they have the gumption to sometimes say things which they know will make you uncomfortable. And finally, teach your children how to listen, how to know when someone is trying to manipulate them, how to discriminate between good arguments and bad ones, how to fight their own corner clearly and honestly. In other words, teach them rhetoric. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. We've got a good half hour now for questions and discussion. Um, there's a lot of people in the audience, and I imagine there are a number of people who want to ask questions. So if you could keep them succinct, that would be good. And when I call you, can you just very quickly say who you are and where you're from um, so that we know? So um, can I start with... Um, just, and you have to wait for the microphone as well. This gentleman in the grey shirt here, and I think if we end up with lots of people, I'll start taking them in groups, if that's all right. So who you are and where you're from. Uh, thank you. My name is... Is it this on? Uh, my name is Daniel Witte, and I'm from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Um, you talked a lot about listening, which I thought was very interesting. And I've been reading a lot about how we are all living in our own media bubbles. With yeah. social media, we're reading our own ideological viewpoints and not somebody else's. And yeah. you didn't say too much about that. I didn't. How do you think that kind of plays into this entire lack of listening that you described? Thank you. Uh, OK, so, so you, you'll know that the, the academic literature, literature on the filter bubble, there's, there's a debate about how profound an effect it is. And long before the invention of the internet, the idea that your friends and your family massively influenced you know, your, your political views was established. I do think there's an accelerant quality. I think the speed and the, the, the natural tendency of, of the, the debate and the language to become, it would appear, more extreme and often more hateful and more personal, I, I think is a problem. And the other thing is that I think quite often opposing views are present, um, but they are pre-framed. You, you hear about um, what a particular politician or a media person says, and you, you hear it in a way where you're given uh, a hostile narrative around it at the point where you consume it. So I think there is a, a significant distorting effect. I do think that. Okay. Um, can I just have uh, this person in the middle yep, with the black sweater on? Yep, you. Just wait for the thing. The man in black. Uh, so I agree with the idea that 
just who you are and where you're yes, from sorry. quickly. I'm Abhishek Thakur. I'm from India. I'm a SEMS exchange student. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with the premise that Hillary Clinton was essentially dismissive towards many, not just Trump supporters, but also Sanders supporters, which is where it okay. started. Yep. But that said, the role of media here cannot be ignored, and I thought you gave it a bit of a short shrift. Let's take the death panel example that you gave. Yep. Now, the media knew that it was wrong when Sarah, P- Sarah Palin said it. And yet you had people like Chuck Todd and Jake Tapper, White House correspondents at the time, yep. playing referee between truth and falsehood. And the argument was, and I believe Chuck Todd said this, it is not our job, <clears throat> it's not our job, it's the White House's job. Don't blame us if the White House didn't do their job. Now, let's say the White House was incompetent and Obama mishandled the debate. Yeah. Was it not the media's job to call death panels a lie when it was a lie? Okay, thank you. Okay, so I, no, I, think, I think there's a lot of justice in what you say. I think what's interesting to me is that in the, in the period between 2009 and 2016, I think the media learned a great deal. Um, I, the... the, the um, Sarah Palin, by the way, claims I had an email exchange with her that she, she, she came up with this phrase herself. There was no kind of no algorithmic help or um, empirical help with it, um, and it's got a whole prehistory. But prepackaged, very effective prepackaged phrases, which kind of it's almost like that. It's not even that. It's even beyond the point of whether they're analysed and 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 critiqued and and contextualised properly. But they just kind of sit. On the screen, they sit on the strap on the 24-hour news channel, or they, they, they sit in your kind of Twitter feed, um, and and they, you know, within 14 days, I think 85% of Americans claim to have heard that phrase, death panels, and so it gets into the, uh, it gets into the ether. Now, what I want to say is there was a lot of a great deal of debunking of death panels, but it's such a resonant phrase that even the debunking serve to distribute it even further. And so, to me, it, 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 it turned out it was an extraordinarily difficult thing. for the, the White House moved pretty energetically to try and kill it. There were, there were absolutely authoritative refutations in all of the responsible media within you know, 24 hours of the thing flashing up. Um, but it still had a life of its own, and particularly amongst Republicans, this point about you know, the, the filter bubble, a very large proportion, almost half of... Republicans believed it was true. In other words, they essentially believed it was almost written into the legislation. If you look at the way Sarah Palin does it on Twitter and on Facebook, she puts the phrase death panels in quotes as if it, she's actually quoting from the Democrat draft legislation. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the media are learning. I think this stuff is hard, it's hard to refute in a way which doesn't strangely give it even more energy. Okay, I'm just uh, scanning over here on this side now. Can we have this woman here, please? Uh, yes. Oh, it works. <laughs> I'm in international development, master's. And I would like, to, I mean, in my personal opinion, the phenomenon you described is quite westernized, quite western. Um, how would you explain that it is not in the developing countries? And do you think it will come in the developing countries? So it's interesting. I, I, I've talked uh, about this in, 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 in quite a few countries now. 
And I get very, I get different views. I, I absolutely accept that, that there are some people from some developing countries who really don't feel this is happening. I have to say, I've been um, uh, recently a couple of times to Mexico, and um, um, in a sense, what they said there is, <laughs> our politicians and some of the media they control have been doing this for years. Uh, what's happening is you're, you're finally discovering what it's like to, 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 to be on the receiving end of really manipulative, you know, when, when very powerful uh, in, interests in a country want to um, replace a truthful account with a false account and got, have got the, the kind of energy to do that. Um, so it, it varies, but um, I, think, I, I think what's happening is a particular kind of loss of confidence in some of the attributes of democratic debate. Um, people, many people think there's no point in debating with people on the other side of the argument. I think that the combination of the crash, um, and in particular in this country, the Iraq war, means there's a very bitter flavour in the air about politicians. And, a, and, a, and, a very, and the, the media also, I think, have got into, into that mood where sometimes scepticism gives way to just straightforward cynicism. Um, and that may not be true in, 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 in developing world countries. But a lot of the suppression of the facts and the, and the, 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 the presentation of fake realities, you can see in China, you can see in Russia, you can see in Turkey. Uh, and in many of these countries, things are getting a lot worse, um, not better. Okay. Um, can we have this woman here in the middle, please? Just wait for the microphone. Hi, Mr. Thompson. Uh, my name is Maddie, and I'm an exchange student from University of California, Davis. Um, and my question for you today is, how do you best recommend a university student in 2017 access the most factual news sources on a daily basis? <laughs> and better yet, do you have any insight on how to overcome our own political biases when doing so? Thank you. Well, I'm not sure it overcomes quite what you... I mean, I think it's just trying to understand, um, uh, uh, you know. I mean, I think you're, uh, an, or, an or, a political orientation, having an ideological or political orientation, I think is, you know, you're a human being, that's likely to be the case. I think it's just understanding. And I, I do think that the, the encounter with the other is the most... Imp I mean, it's like... The fundamental obvious point about human beings, which is we disagree about stuff, <laughs> and there are people who will feel just as strongly on the opposite, opposite side of a given argument. And so the big, the big point is, um, in, in addition to you know, fairly obvious access to fairly obvious, decent, high-quality journalism sources, you know the list of, of the kind of ones, choose, choose at least one which is ideologically different, you know, um, um, if you're a liberal, choose a, choose a, choose, read the Wall Street Journal and read the opinions in the Wall Street Journal, uh, if only on the basis of know your enemy. I mean, it's like if that's, you know, and vice versa. I, I, the real thing is, is fighting against um, uh, just reading people who, who flatter you because they, they say you're really smart, you, you know, you, you, you might, might, you know, your views are the right ones. That, it's kind of pointless. So, so I, think, I think it's really the range that's... Um, but the, the encounter with the other, uh, it, it, it's, um, it, in 800, the year 800, Charlemagne 
wants to rebuild civilization, and they start, he starts by teaching rhetoric. And it's not because he wants to give nice after-dinner speeches. It's because he, he comes, comes, he's come to believe that rhetoric is, is the way of, sh- of beginning to build up a shared understanding of reality, even with all the differences of opinion. So you actually you, 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 you understand the other different cultures. He's trying to kind of knit Europe together. Uh, and, and the core of it is, is having enough dialogue that you can un- understand where other people are coming from. And I think, tragically, right now, some of that process is going into reverse in our societies. Okay. Um, there's a gentleman at the back with a whitish shirt. Hi. Uh, my name's Kieran. I'm from Ireland, and I'm a human rights student. Um, thank you very much for the talk, first of all. Um, when you spoke about listening to people with differing views, the racist, sexist, homophobic yeah. views, uh, which I agree with, by the way, is it not a question of just balancing what is covered? We have a big problem with this in Ireland in our abortion debate, like the pro-choice, pro-life get equal, equal yeah. time, and that's actually uh, legal because it's a referendum debate. Yeah. So if you take uh, Brexit, the Remain campaign had a really difficult argument to broker, but all you kind of saw for two weeks was the Remain bus with the 350 million. Hillary's emails, it's been proven, got more coverage than any of other, any other of Trump scandals because it was kind of a drip drip. It got more coverage than any other uh, election event. So people began to say, oh, well, they're both bad and untrustworthy, despite Trump having far more scandals. Was this a major flaw of coverage of 2016? It's, uh, what I'm trying to say is, is another we should accept that these are things people feel and say and think, but not equalise them so people think the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's more about balancing the views to say this exists. I think, I think that the... In, in election campaigns, although I think the media does try quite hard to fact-check and... And to be quite clear, the, the, the New York Times, over the course of the campaign, and by the time we got to the actual presidential runoff, um, fact-checking, which in previous elections had been a kind of paragraph 16, um, was, was going into headlines. And so by, by the summer, this is very different from a, a UK or Irish um, public broadcasting environment, but, but so, 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 you know, by the latter, latter stage of the campaign, the... The New York Times was, 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 had headlines like um, Donald Trump falsely claims that or F- Donald Trump asserts without any evidence that. So that the very first thing the person, that the, 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 the reader sees is the, is the, if you like, the fact-checking context before they hear the claim. Um, um, I think the coverage of things like the, 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 the um, Hillary Clinton emails which she's, she's got a very bitter paragraph or two about the New York Times, who broke that story in, in her book, which came out last week. Um, it's complicated. I think there are many people who believe that if she'd simply dealt with it um, right off the bat, said it was an error of judgment, I apologise, rather than trying to just hope it would go away of its own accord, it wouldn't have played it quite so badly. OK. Um, this gentleman in the middle, a couple of rows from the back... Wave your hand around. Yep, you. Hello, my name is Bob. Um, I'm a student at Durham. Um, so I work at a supermarket, and I was talking to this woman. I got talking, and she said to me, <laughs> I don't trust anyone with a university degree. Mm. And at the time, I was, I was shocked. But upon reflection, 
you realize there's, there's this divide. And with this divide, I was, was wondering, is it because of the system we kind of operate in, where we base competency on supposedly what education you have? And if you look at people in government, it's not about who has the most experience in a certain field, but it's about which Russell Group University you've gone to. Have you got an economics degree from LSE? Or are you from Oxford yeah. and done PPE? It's basing competency on supposedly your education. And this divide that we, we've created because of the systems that we operate in, how can we now, supposedly the clever people, be so shocked? I think I agree with all of that. Uh, 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 I, I mean, in, in other words, um, um, you know, there, there are many forms of preju prejudice. And one form of prejudice is the blanket assumption that people with a given qualification, maybe not even a qualification related to their actual task or their job, um, puts them in a different category where they should be more believed or whatever. And... It, what's interesting is you, one or two companies, Google, I, I believe now, is no longer paying any attention to um, uh, academic qualifications when it's hiring computer scientists. It wants to see uh, how candidates deal with problems. And actually, they're, they're, as it were, there are kind of fresh tests. Can you figure this out? Can you do this? On which they base their hiring. They found that there was very little correlation between formal academic qualifications and whether people performed or didn't perform in the job. But I, 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 I think that we should be... Manifestly, there are many walks of life where um, having an academic background uh, um, makes sense. And, you know... Nobody wants to go to someone. Nobody wants me to fix their toothache. You know, you want you want to get someone who's actually been trained how to do it. Um, um, so, there, but but I I do think it's it's and the gulf and the sense of um, understandable uh, anger and resentment at these kind of in the end rather artificial barriers. Um, I think is a big part of what happened. I agree with that. Okay. Sorry. Uh, w w uh, <laughs> hello. Um, <laughs> um, so why don't we take it's two the lip questions. of the table? It I, I was going to call this woman here, and then immediately after you, why don't you give your question as well? If you can keep a note, yeah. keep them succinct because we've got hands all over the yeah. place. Hi, my name's Isabel. Um, I'm from Australia, but I'm studying here at LSE, my master's this year. Um, my question is, um, given that now there's this doubt in the trust of, I guess, politicians who have this traditional background, do you think that the current political elite, I suppose, that exists, do they have the chance to come back, or do we need a fresh influx of the you know, next set of politicians to come in before the public, um, I guess, yeah. trusts again? Okay. And um, this woman here. <clears throat> um, my name's Amanda Barnes, and I'm a communications consultant. And my question is that, uh, do you think it would make a difference if the institutions that you say should be doing more listening were less rather than more dominated by people who come from relatively privileged backgrounds? Okay. Um, so, to, to Isabel first, I think the um, Emmanuel Macron example is an interesting one, where essentially uh, it, it, it felt almost as if the French mainstream 
establishment decided that the moment had come to completely repackage um, mainstream politics, uh, uh, essentially almost unknown, younger, fresher political figure with a new party. And in an incredibly fluid way, it's like the establishment kind of moved, moved around that and got it to work. And I, I, it feels to me that the, that kind of relatively drastic um, repositioning might work in other countries. The, the interesting issue is whether either in the UK or the US, the, our political institutions, our political parties, the structures of government, the career you have to have to become a politician would allow that to happen. Um, and, and to your question, I, I, I think it's a very, again, it's, I mean, a, rather like the question about uh, degrees, I think it's a very fair point um, that, not surprisingly, um, people, um, when they hear a lot of people, I'm not saying I'm different from this, by the way, um, um, talking, and they guess at their background, at their income, uh, the kind of life they lead and compare it with their own. If you feel that someone is living a completely different life than yours, has never, you know, experienced the kind of things you experience, you, you're less inclined to think that they, what they say is likely to be based on kind of knowledge of you and, and empathy. I mean, to me, this is sort of about a kind of um, uh, a perception of empathy. So I, th I, think, I, I think that is an issue. Okay. Um, now, I just have to look everywhere. Um, could I have um, this woman at the front here and then that gentleman with the light blue shirt? <clears throat> and, and do be concise, please. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you. My name's Sarah. I'm from London. Um, I just wanted to come back on what you said before about Hillary Clinton. Um, some people, in answer to someone else's question, how it would have been better, there was a view among some people that it would yeah. have been better if she'd just come clean. Yeah. But just talking about the role of the media, wouldn't there have been, you know, the next day, a load of headlines about how she, I don't know, just, just sort of criticising her sure. for that? And, and how does that, you know, how, how are politicians supposed to, because I agree with you, they, there is a lack of trust and they need to be more honest. But if they change their minds or they make a mistake or, you know, just a very human thing that doesn't make them wrong or stupid or anything, they, they would get pilloried for it in the press. And, and how is that all supposed to work? Yeah. I mean, this theory is, is kind, of <clears throat> kind of inside baseball. The theory would go that, that if she'd done it promptly, there would have been 24 hours of noise after which you would have gone instead of dragging on and on and on and her reluctance to confront it became itself uh, a narrative um, which the um, uh, Republican critics were able to use so I mean uh, look the, the, the challenge that we've got is the media um, across the Western world have got a duty to challenge politicians to try and expose wrongdoing to when politicians say things which aren't true to try and but but there's a constant tension particularly with the kind of competition in the media and the sense that the media are kind of fighting their lives as well to overdo it and you know I honestly believe you know the ones organizations I've worked for Channel 4 the BBC and and, and New York Times try hard not to do that but it, there's no question the temptation is is there everywhere and it makes it very, very tough for politicians. The other simple thing, I'll just finish with this, is to say um, I absolutely believe that politicians should get a, a little bit more space 
to talk directly to the public um, on the media. Uh, by all means, then, cross-examine them, but just a little... I mean, when I say a little bit more, I don't mean hours. I mean just, just a few seconds uh, uh, when they've got an idea to explain what their idea is without the kind of the filtering and the framing of it and the, and the, the reaction to it and the analysis of it. Because but, but, otherwise, in the end, if you stop politicians actually talking directly to the public, you shouldn't be too surprised when the public say, we don't believe them. Hi, um, I'm Benedict, an A-level student from Rygate. Um, you talked about there's almost like a battle between reason and emotion. But do you think that's like a new thing? Do you think that it might, it's linked to things like calling people pro-choice or pro-life with one suggesting reason and like making a rational decision about having an abortion and the other being much more emotional, moral language? It's ancient. I mean, I've described Aristotle, who I think is kind of, you know, he's actually observing. I mean, the art of rhetoric by, by Aristotle, it's like he observes how human beings try and convince each other of stuff. And he analyzes it and says, actually, a number of things are going on. It reasons going on, but also there's other stuff going on. Here it is. Plato, I think, would have taken a very different view. Plato was very suspicious of anything beyond dialectic, beyond rational argument. And because of that, he distrusted rhetoric. Um, if you read the Gorgias, um, he thinks Gorgias is just a cynical... Gorgias is a sophist who, t- who, who, who teaches rhetoric for a living, and he thinks that Gorgias is a kind of cynical kind of spin doctor, essentially. Uh, but what's interesting is that's why Plato doesn't like democracy either. And, and in many ways, his dislike of rhetoric because of the emotion, because of the potential for demagoguery and all the rest of it, ends up being an argument against democracy as well. And I think in a funny way... Um, if you actually believe in, de- in, in, in democracy, you have to believe in kind of taking human beings as you get them, which is a jumble of identity and passion and ideas. And the whole Enlightenment idea that you can get rid of all of that and just have purest uh, reason, it's true in scientific papers, it's not true in political language. Okay, um, the uh, man there in the green T-shirt and then uh, this man here with the glasses. Sorry, someone over there? Nope. Oh, you, okay. <laughs> well, let's just add you on. Yeah. But if everyone can be quick, because we're getting... Okay. <clears throat> perhaps we should take them all together, actually. Okay. okay, you just said at the start of your speech that the listening exercises, such as referendums in the UK... Like the um, they kind of the people would stick their middle things up at the establishment. Do you think that's because the people sticking their middle things up at the establishment it kind of got their language so succinct that they convinced other people to do it as well? Or would you say that it's people kind of cottoned on to the establishment, kind of asking a question in a referendum that they already know the outcome that they'll get is what they want? Okay, thank you. Uh, hello, my name's uh, Joe from uh, the Masters in Political Sociology. Um, I wanted to ask um, a question about the language of identity politics. A lot of the examples that you gave were uh, examples of the language of identity politics. And I wanted to ask if you thought that type of language is particularly ripe for um, counterfactual claims. And also uh, what your thought is um, in terms of whether for the left moving forward in particular, whether there's scope for them to 
uh, change um, the state of political discourse by focusing less on identity politics and more on classic uh, traditional social democratic uh, economic welfare. Thanks. And just thirdly, this gentleman here. Dr. Keith Postler of LSE. Um, at the end of your uh, talk, you gave some what might be considered recommendations. Um, do you think, because of the degree, the strong degree of polarization and authenticism that you've mentioned, that um, we're beyond um, listening? Is listening possible? Or are we just going beyond it? Okay, so three very different questions. Uh, yeah, and all big stuff. Mm. So what I want to say about referenda is I think the... I mean, I've got a real problem with, with, with referenda. I, to be fair, I accept a referendum can be a constitutional instrument. It was about Brexit. Uh, the the, the Boating McBoat face, I think, is a listening exercise. But the problem with referenda, for me, fundamentally, is it, it, the, the, it's a series of conceits. The first conceit is you can, you can ask one simple question as if one policy was not connected to every other policy. So all the trade-offs and, and, and the t total impact of the policy on everything else gets excluded. And I think it's an extremely strange, artificial thing to do. The second conceit then, the, the gentleman from Ireland mentioned this, is you then end up with people like the public broadcasters stuck in this slightly make-believe world where you've got two imaginary political parties, pro and anti, which won't have any accountability because those parties won't exist once the votes happened. And you have this very, unlike a, a straightforward representative election, this very abstract thing where, you know, you're giving equal time to, you know, potentially, you know, the world's greatest expert on one side and Coco the Clown on the other, but it's all done on the stopwatch. So I, I, think, it's like, I think they're like a bad, they're, they're a bad thing. Um, identity politics... Um, uh, I do think there's a particular issue. I think that what's strangely, and maybe this is back to listening, universalism on the left, in, on the left in particular, the idea of universal, universal notions of all of us together, of rights which we all enjoy, of um, our solidarity as a society, everyone's right to be part of that society, and the universalism of, of rights is underrepresented, I think, in, in language from the left, and potentially divisive, potentially divisive identity politics overrepresented. Um, I think if we can't listen, um, we'd better think about a different form of government and democracy. Uh, I don't see how democracy works in the long term without, 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 without listening. Um, I want to say that periods of extreme divisiveness in, historically have been... Um, replaced with uh, or succeeded by periods of far more placid, more consensual politics. I mean, Hobbes, you know, um, by the end of the English Civil War, thinks um, that really only, you know, a very, very powerful central state can, uh, which is essentially controlling debate, um, uh, can, 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 can stop division and dissent and civil war happening. That's not what happened in, 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 in England. Um, John Locke and others came along, and actually we, we saw a very different development of a free press, beginning the concepts of human rights. So, um, you know, periods where it looked like everything was up and, and society was completely divided have been succeeded <coughs> by periods of regeneration and repair. Let's hope so.
Yeah, um, unfortunately, I'm also looking at the clock. There, there are clearly a large number of people who'd like to ask questions, but I, I fear I, I do... Uh, well, it's a good occasion to suggest that you should come to our next event about the <laughs> Labor Party, and if you wave your hand vigorously, I'll make a point of... Uh, or maybe not. Um, Go on. Fox News. Fox News. For or against? People in England don't know how divisive uh, and nefarious Fox, how, how divisive and nefarious Fox News was. Um, my name is Javid Jalili. I, I live half the time in America and half the time here. And my brother's a comedian. You might know him. But uh, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, the Tea Party. These yeah. were all New York yeah. Times haters. And part of it was because of monetization, trying to crush the, uh, the opposition. Yeah, it, 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 so, so it, it, Trump it, it, just rode the, rode the, uh, surfed the wave of all that to, to power. It, it, it's true that the very, very divisive broadcasting, which probably began actually with shock jocks on talk radio in the 1980s uh, and 90s, that, that was extended to t TV. And by the way, MSNBC on the left, just as much as Fox News. I think that's a feature, though I have to say, I think now in the age of the internet, cable is relatively slightly less important than it was, and I think it's the, it's the ability of, the, of groups to use the internet to promote and develop ideas, up to including really extreme racist ideas, which is probably the single most troubling thing at the moment. Okay, now I really must um, wind this up. Um, I, I think it's very clear, and I think there's little doubt, that there is a real problem here that our speakers identified. Something has, is going on with public language. Um, if you just wait a sec, we'll all finish, and then you can all go. Um, <laughs> But, and, and he's tried to suggest three um, solutions or ways of uh, dealing with this. He's talked about the importance of listening. He's talked about combining respect for evidence with a certain kind of empathy. And he's also talked about the importance of standing up for the facts. Now, it's the case that he presides over an organisation which a powerful man who's in charge of the most powerful country in the world says is an enemy of the American people. So you'll have to decide how seriously to take his issues. But surely <laughs> one thing is true, and that is that if we want to have the work done to produce the quality of information which makes our public discourse valuable, we do have to be prepared to put the resources into it. And it's easier for me to say than for you because you preside over such an organisation. But I think there's a lot of free riding on that work going on at the moment. Yes. So I do think that's a very important thing to underline. But can I just end by asking you to thank our speaker, Mark Thompson.